and welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Employment Law Matters. I'm Barrister Daniel Barnett from Outer Temple Chambers, and I'm joined today by Jude Shepherd of 42 Bedford Row. Now, a little while ago, I chaired 30 webinars on all different aspects of employment law, and Jude spoke about tribunal procedure. She was answering questions from dozens of people on tribunal procedure, but there were so many questions we didn't get the chance to go through through them all in the live session. And Jude agreed to come back and answer some extra questions on this podcast for you. If you're interested in looking at the original 30 webinars, you can get information about them at www.employmentwebinars.co.uk, where the recordings of all 30 are available, along with a downloadable transcript. That's www.employmentwebinars.co.uk, link in the show notes. Or the entire series of transcripts has been turned into a book, which you can find on Amazon. You can search under my name, Daniel Barnett, and the title of the book is The Employment Law Collection 2021. But do have a look at at the recordings of the original 30 webinars, www.employmentwebinars.co.uk. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. Jude Shepherd is head of the employment team at 42 Bedford Row, and she joins me to discuss and answer your questions on tribunal procedure. Jude, hello. Hi, Daniel. I'm just going to throw some questions at you that are questions that were asked during the webinars, but we didn't manage to answer. So I'm going to start with a question about witnesses. If a witness's name appears a few days before a hearing and there's been no mention of that person in any documents... Is that permissible if the other side doesn't have a clue who the person is? Yes, although it's surprising that that should happen if you've had directions in the case. So I suppose it rather depends on whether your case is happening in England and Wales or in Scotland. If it's happening in England and Wales, then there should have been some sort of direction for exchange of witness statements. And therefore, you shouldn't really be taken by surprise. I suppose it's more likely to happen if there's been no direction for witness statements, which might be more likely to happen in Scotland. But it's not completely unheard of. And I suppose the issue really is whether or not you are prejudiced by the sudden appearance of a witness whose identity you simply don't understand. And so, obviously, if you're in England and Wales, you would expect a witness statement. You'd ask whether a witness statement is being provided. And if it's very shortly before the hearing and you simply can't deal with it on the day, then your option is to apply for an adjournment to be able to deal with the evidence. Um, But it's not something that should ordinarily arise where you've had directions in a case. I suppose just thinking it through, if you do apply for an adjournment, it's one of those rare exceptions where you don't have to establish the other sides acted unreasonably or vexatiously because there's a postponement the costs automatically flow unless there's a good reason for it not to yes indeed and you know clearly if you've been taken by surprise particularly if that's been in breach of um, some previous directions uh, and you simply can't deal with it at short notice then yes that's going to bolster your ability to uh, to seek costs My experience is that where you get a witness cropping up at the last moment, particularly if the other side is self-representing, they're usually going to be pretty much irrelevant to the issues, because if they were relevant, you'd have heard about them long before. 
Yes, indeed. Probably some kind of character witness or something along those lines. So do a bit of digging and uh, you might find out that actually they're irrelevant and the judge will say, we simply don't need to hear from them because it's not going to help us determine the issues in the case. Question from Les Veronofsky. Les asks, is there any basis to appeal a decision made remotely to extend time for an ET3 by seven months for COVID reasons if the judge didn't have a bundle of papers in front of him? Hmm, interesting. Well, seven months is a long time, obviously, to extend time for a, for an ET3, but there is a fairly wide discretion to do so. And I suppose it rather depends on the circumstances in which that occurred. I don't know why why that would have happened without the judge having papers in front of them. They should obviously have seen the claim form and, and understood what the respondent is saying about why they've not been able to file that response. I, mean, I suppose the short answer is really that there probably is quite a wide discretion and it's going to be difficult to appeal that unless you consider that it's a, a, it's a, a wholly unreasonable decision on the part of the employment judge. But uh, it strikes me it may well be the case that the respondent is saying, well, actually, it's been lying on a doormat somewhere in an office or, or along the, something along those lines uh, for COVID reasons. And I, I think we will see increasingly cases where there are lengthy extensions for ET3s, you know, for that very reason, because we're living in very different times. Question from Sue Apps. Sue asked, where there's a claim with more than 50 claimants, is it possible to ask for the final hearing to include remedy in relation to a small sample of claimants only, with the hope this will allow the parties to be guided on settling all of the other claims? Well, presumably, if you've got a multiple claimant case with over 50 claimants, you're probably dealing with a lead case type scenario. And I would think there is no reason why you can't invite the tribunal to deal with liability and remedy uh, and make a decision on both of those issues if indeed there are common issues between all of the claimants. So I, I suppose the difficulty is, I think what Rule 36 says is that where you take lead cases there is sort of an automatic application of the decision the tribunal makes to other claimants. And I suppose if every claimant has a particularly unique remedy because of the differences in their claim, that that might be difficult. But there there must be commonality, I would think, amongst the various claimants. And so as long as you set those parameters and ask the tribunal to deal with their findings accordingly, then yes, it it seems like a very pragmatic way of dealing with it because it makes it more likely that the parties will not have to come back for a remedy hearing for over 50 claimants and analyse all of those individual cases following the determination on the lead cases. I'm loving this, Jude Shepherd, because what's really happening here, and I think a lot of people might not realise it, is you've got many years experience of employment tribunal advocacy, and you're just able to distill with your knowledge of what's happened in the past, what a judge is likely to do in any given situation. And that sort of experience is worth its weight in gold. You can't find it in books. Now, to what extent, Jude, do you find that if someone comes to you for advice, your gut feeling differs from what appears in a book? And how do you know that your gut feeling is the right one? Yes, 
I say a lot. So, you know, you have to weigh all of that in because you know very well that there are, you know, there is the book version, but, you, you know, you cannot divorce that from what you know about how tribunals deal with cases on the ground. And so it's about, you know, considering both of those things and, you know, telling a client what your gut feel is and, and how, how that might impact on it. I mean, if we all had a crystal ball, that would be great, wouldn't it? You know, different tribunals dif- operate differently. You, your gut feeling, sadly, is not always right, but it's important nevertheless, I think. Another question that's been sent in, if a claimant is adding an individual as a respondent to a discrimination claim, so that'll be a manager or a director rather than the limited company, what efforts need to be made to find the individual's address for the tribunal claim form, or can the employer's address be used? And just to make it a bit more complicated, the question continues, what if you're not sure whether the individual is still employed by the employer? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question, because I think, it's right, I think I'm right in saying that when I deal with discrimination claims that have individual respondents, Nine times out of 10, their details are given with the employer's address, because obviously an employee doesn't readily have access to their home address. And so it's not something I've given a huge amount of thought to, actually. I mean, I guess um, from because your first step, obviously, is that you've got to go through ACAS early conciliation and provide details. Again, you know, I would say that the majority of the time that is done by way of the employee providing the business address of that individual. Um, so bringing the claim, obviously, in the context usually of them being a manager or or a colleague. And so I think tribunals are well used to that. It is obviously different if the individual is no longer employed. I think pragmatically what I'd do in those circumstances is that I would provide it care of the employer's address, but make it clear to the tribunal that the individual you know, might not automatically see that document. And the harsh reality is that normally it'll be the respondent who passes that claim on to the individual. So you would ordinarily hope that person has contact details and passes it on. I don't think the tribunals are massively overzealous about saying, well, this is an individual and therefore you have to provide that home address. Not, not in my experience. I suppose that if there's some difficulty finding the individual's address because they've moved on, there's always the just and equitable discretion to extend time to fall back on, this being a discrimination claim. Yes, yes, indeed. Another question. How should a respondent, an employer, deal with an unrepresented claimant who refuses to open or read any correspondence with the respondent, saying they're unable to deal with the litigation because of stress and a mental health disability? Let's assume they qualify as disabled. Yes, well, interesting in the context of tribunal correspondence, because I I mean, I've come across a number of these types of cases over the years, where you, you know, you essentially have a, a an employee who's gone AWOL, and how you deal with that sensitively, you know, suspecting they're not opening correspondence. But it's a slightly different situation when you've already got litigation ongoing, because of course, rule 92 requires you to copy correspondence to the other party that you're sending to the tribunal. 
But I think, in fact, that rule does say that you can depart from it where the interests of justice dictate it's appropriate to do so. And of course, there is the question of whether or not you have to make reasonable adjustments. And so somewhere along the line, you're going to have to seek the counsel of the tribunal and say, this individual is saying they don't want me to copy into this correspondence because it's stressing them out or whatever it may be. You know, is it appropriate to make a reasonable adjustment for us only to send the correspondence to you and that you will then forward it on, assuming that the claimant has less of a difficulty with the correspondence, you know, assuming that the difficulty is that the correspondence is coming from the response themselves rather than the tribunal and, and if that's a way around it then that's almost certainly a reasonable adjustment I think the tribunal would be willing to make to get round rule 92 and make sure obviously that the other party is appraised of everything that you're saying to them which is obviously important. Question from Jill Brown and just to be clear this isn't employment judge Jill Brown because Jill is spelt differently and it's a really interesting tactical question. If a claim is out of time Should the claimant make an application as part of their ET1 for an extension of time with their supporting evidence, or should they just wait for the respondent to take the time point and see what happens? If it's very obviously out of time, then I would tackle that on the face of the claim form because it's a jurisdictional issue. So it's not for the respondent to take or not to take at the end of the day. It has to be dealt with somewhere along the line. And so, and the tribunal are likely to pick on it up on it, even if the respondent doesn't to begin with. And you definitely don't want to only find this out at trial, uh, where you've spent a lot of money preparing the case, only for somebody to say, hang on a second, isn't this case out of time? Uh, Should we deal with that as the first thing at the trial when you spent all of that money on a disclosure exercise and preparing statements? So, yes, I, I would get in there first and make it clear, you know, what your issues are as to why you filed it out of time so that that can be be dealt with at an early stage. I don't think I've ever experienced a case where both the employer and the judge has missed a time point. It just wouldn't happen because it's such a basic thing to check on the lawyer's checklist. Yes, absolutely. And like I say, by the time you get to hearing, it it will be picked up, I'm sure. George asks, can you get disclosure of the video of a CVP, Cloud Video Platform Hearing, in order to support an allegation of bias against the judge? I don't know the answer to that one. Jude, do you know the answer? I think it's almost certainly a no. I I don't know that for certain. I mean, obviously, this is a new thing for employment tribunals, the sense that there is any element of recording, because, of course, thus far, we've never had recording of proceedings. I think certainly it is the case that those recordings can be accessed in order to determine you know whether there whether a complaint that is made about those proceedings is merited but i i certainly don't think there would be any circumstances in which the actual video itself would be disclosed to the parties and i think uh, what happens in the civil courts doesn't it is that that potentially if you think that the 
that the audio recording of proceedings is important and needs to be considered, for example, in an appeal, you can get permission for that to be played at a future hearing, but it isn't disclosed to the parties for them to do with what they will. Or obviously you might have a transcript to deal with. And I think a similar process would probably be dealt with in a, in a tribunal proceedings, but I'd be, I'd be very surprised indeed if they were prepared to disclose the actual video of the hearing. Question from Joseph Brown. If a claimant has good reason to think that the respondent, the employer, is being selective in the documents disclosed, what's your advice regarding making an application for specific disclosure? Well, I think be specific. So be very clear about the documents that you want that you think exist and also say why you think they exist and why the respondent is being selective. You know, it, it won't be enough just to say, well, I would have expected to see some documents along these lines because the respondent can say, well, we haven't got any uh, and you can't have an order for disclosure for documents that don't exist. But if you have good reason to think they're being selective, you know, with sort of facts backing that up, then make sure you set those out in your specific disclosure application. I find a useful tactic. I don't always get the order I seek, but I find a useful tactic is to seek an order for the managing director or someone very senior in an organisation to swear an affidavit confirming the documents don't exist. And if that's done, a judge will tend to take it at face value unless you can show there's a reference to a document in in a subsequent document. So, for example, if an email refers back to another document, and if you can show that and show someone sworn on oath that the first document doesn't exist, you've pretty much got them on toast when it comes to credibility and cross-examination. But, Joseph, I also think it's a lot harder than people assume, because if you make an application to the Tribunal for Specific Disclosure, it can take months before that application's dealt with. It's not a write a letter to the tribunal and get your documents the next week situation. It's a long, drawn-out process. And preparation for the hearing has to continue even while that's going on in the background. Yes, indeed. You want to try and time it before some case management, uh, a hearing, if at all possible, so that you know that it can be dealt with um, at, a, at a hearing. Otherwise, as Daniel says... You know, these things do tend to fall to the bottom of a, a large pile of correspondence and it does take time for them to be considered. A question from an HR practitioner. They say they often represent their company in the employment tribunal, but they feel that claimant litigants in person are treated more sympathetically than they are as an employer. Do you think there's any truth in that, Jude? Obviously, it varies between judges. And if there is any truth in it, what can this HR practitioner do? I mean, I'm not sure it is necessarily true, although I can see why it might be perceived in that way. Because if you're an HR professional, by definition, you have a level of knowledge and understanding of, you know, although you're not a lawyer, of um, and perhaps tribunal procedure and processes putting it too, too highly, but you will ordinarily have a greater understanding than the average claimant, I would think. And so that might be why you perceive that perhaps judges expect a bit more from you because they expect a bit more knowledge. But certainly my experience is that it's, you know, it's fairly even handed. And, you know, judges do, uh, you know, Daniel and I are not used to dealing with cases where nobody's represented by, defini by definition, because if we're there, somebody is. But 
But the reality is, obviously, that employment judges are dealing with a huge amount of cases where both parties are unrepresented. And, you know, I I think in my experience, they are pretty aware of that. And, you know, you should flag it with an employment judge if you don't understand something or, you know, you don't have experience of it and you think the judge is assuming you do. They won't be offended if you point out that you don't in much the way, same way that that a litigant in person would. We had a lot of questions on fees and a lot of people asked in different words, do you think fees are going to be reintroduced in employment tribunals? Just by way of of background for people listening, in case you don't know, in 2013, fees were introduced and it cost up to £1,200 to have an unfair dismissal or discrimination claim heard. And then in 2017, Unison, the trade union, challenged the legality of the fees regime in the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said that fees were unlawful. So all fees that had been paid had to be paid back by the government to the people who paid them. And claimants didn't have to pay a fee to start a claim after that in 2017. Didn't help all the thousands of people who'd been put off from putting in claims between 2013 and 2017, of course. But Jude Shepard, in the light of rumblings from the government, do you think we're likely to see some form of reintroduction of fees? I think probably yes. I can't see us getting away with it, particularly given you know the current workload in the tribunals, which of course is being compounded by you know the situation over the last year. You know, I'd be pretty surprised if there wasn't some introduction, whether it be fees or whether it be a change in the costs regime uh, to bring it more in line with the civil court so that you are so that litigants know that they're exposing themselves to a greater risk of a costs order um, if they bring a claim and are unsuccessful. But yes, I'm pretty sure that over the next few years, we will see some developments in that in that regard. That was Jude Shepherd from 42 Bedford Row. Next week's edition is a special one. I'm going to be speaking with Michael Rubinstein, the doyen of employment law, who is the man behind the IRLRs, the Industrial Relations Law Reports, and lots of other journals, as well as being one of the UK's leading organisers of employment law conferences. I hope you found this episode of Employment Law Matters helpful. Do tune in next week. If you're not a subscriber, please go to your podcast store, whether it's the Apple Podcast Store, Spotify, or whatever, and subscribe. Plus, please leave leave us a review. We like reviews, especially when they're five stars. I promise I read every single review that people leave for this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Jude Shepherd from 42 Bedford Row for joining me. I'm Barrister Daniel Barnett. Bye-bye. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.